On today's episode, we talk with the remarkable, phenomenal, and overall amazing Dr. Nancy Frey. Okay, I admit it. I'm a little biased as I'm a huge fangirl of her work. But I'll let you know, I have heard others describe her as being phenomenal as well. You'll hear about her journey of being a teacher of students with intellectual disabilities and how she recognized early on that isolation and segregated settings contributed to being left out of the flow and the mainstream of society, both professionally and personally. Her current research explores the intersectionality of leadership and being able to influence systems that promote equity, belonging, and academic excellence. Join us as we explore how our system understands the lived experiences of our students, especially for those who are at the margins. We ask questions like, do we leverage social and emotional learning as a tool to fix student behavior or as a tool to nurture a student's sense of belonging in our schools? We also explore what mindsets, invisible mental models, and beliefs exist in our system that minimizes our ability to develop a sense of belonging for our students. And finally, we ask ourselves, how might we partner with our students, families, and communities to understand the learned experience and how best to meet the needs of our students? Stay tuned and hear about her advice for promoting a sense of belonging and how she actualizes her research and promising practice. We also share our humanity as we talk about her favorite movie and special fun facts about her. As you know, we try our best to be articulate and sometimes you'll hear us get tongue-tied. We appreciate your grace as we open this space for this conversation. Hello and welcome to EquiChats, Amplifying Voices for Educational Equity, a podcast where we explore systemic equity challenges and discuss innovative approaches to bring about change with host Valentina Escañuela and Dr. Deborah Hernandez. Today's episode is focused on a sense of belonging. Many times when we think about belonging and the LCFF priorities, we connect to priorities five and six. LCFF priority five focuses on student engagement. Required measures in the LCAP are attendance rates, chronic absenteeism rates, middle and high school dropout rates, and high school graduation rates. Priority six focuses on school climate. LCAP measures include suspension and expulsion rates, and other measures including survey of pupils, parents, and teachers on the sense of safety and connectedness. Many times, LEAs limit their data collection to what is required on the LCAP. So we see metrics such as the percentage of high school graduates, the percentages of students that are chronically absent, and the number or percentages of students that are suspended at least once. Many times this data is lagging in nature and is what you would find on the California dashboard. Even in priority six, the survey of pupils, parents, and teachers on safety and connectedness may be antiquated as the survey may be given every other year or annually. Today's conversation is not about that. We need to go deeper. The research is clear. When students feel like they belong, when they feel valued, seen, and heard, they do better academically and social emotionally. Therefore, we need to ask the deeper questions. How does our system understand the lived experiences of our students, especially students that are at the margins of our system? Students that are chronically absent, students that are suspended and expelled, or students that are struggling academically? Do we leverage social emotional learning as a tool to fix students' behavior or as a tool that nurtures students' belonging in our school? 
What mindsets, invisible mental models, and beliefs exist in our system that minimizes our ability to develop a sense of belonging for students? And how might we partner with students, family, and community to understand and learn about how we can best serve the needs of our students? Now let's get this show on the road. Vamonos! Today's guest is Dr. Nancy Frey, who has been in education for 36 years and shares that she has always been engaged in equity work. She began as a special education teacher where she fell in love with teaching. Dr. Frey is currently a professor of literacy in teacher education and educational leadership at San Diego State University. She is the co-founder of Health Sciences High and Middle College in City Heights. She's an author and has published in the Reading Teacher Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy, Principal Leadership, Middle School Journal, and Educational Leadership. She is most proud of her articles, books, and awards. She received the Monty Award at San Diego State University for being outstanding faculty, being in California Reading Hall of Fame, being a member of winning teams in numerous escape rooms. Okay, I did my first escape room. I shared that. Woo, that was tough. She collaborates with Doug Fisher, who she shares often includes all things fun, Ian Pompian, John Hattie, and many teachers and administrators, including her colleagues, Alex Gonzalez, Jim Marshall, Vinnie Pompey, Rachel Stewart, Diane Lapp, and the late Jim Flood. Welcome, Dr. Frey. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And please call me Nancy. <laughs> Thanks, Nancy. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Nancy Frey. Can you share about yourself and your journey to where you are today as an educator and how it relates to educational equity? And equity and belonging, I think, have been retrospectively, as I look back on my career, have really informed every step along the way. I started out in education working with students with intellectual disabilities. And at the time, and this this goes back um, several decades at this point, the, the students were often educated in segregated settings. The school system that I worked with didn't even educate their students with intellectual disabilities in their school district. They actually had a consortium or a collaborative of all of these other districts. And this is where they sent mm. their kids who had the deepest needs. That was my start and I recognized right away that as much as I loved these children and loved the adults that I worked with, that we were, we were all very isolated from the flow, the mainstream of society, both professionally and personally. And I think that was really kind of my starting off point for where it was that I needed to be able to concentrate my efforts. Wow. Yeah, that is a different setting than what we're seeing today. Although I know there's some correlation to the sense of belonging and to being like you're a part of the educational setting and being a part of what's going on. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm really interested in the research that you do now for full transparency. You and I know each other because you were part of my doctoral program, which, you know, I'm a big fangirl. I've said that to anybody that I talk to. I know that your research goes deep in this area. And I, I'm curious if you could share a little bit about your research and some findings that you're coming across. 
Well, first of all, I feel very fortunate that I got to be able to work alongside you shoulder to shoulder in all of this. One of the wonderful things about being in education, and I think all of us who are listening today can understand this, we get as much as we receive. It isn't all just in one direction where we're the one who is giving, giving, giving as the educator. We learn so much from the students that we work with, whether they are young people, whether they are adults, we learn a lot for them. In terms of my current research, it's really kind of an intersection between leadership. What does it mean to be a leader at the site level, at the district level, and being able to influence those systems that promote equity, that promote belonging, and that promote academic excellence. And I think that's really the nexus of where all of us come from in terms of being caring educators, that we want to promote those three things. If you're just paying attention to one and you're not paying attention to those other two, then you're missing the boat. The San Diego County Office of Education's annual equity conference is designed for educators, community leaders, parents, students, advocates, and policymakers. Join us and hundreds of equity champions to advance educational equity for all students at the 2024 Equity Conference, January 18th and 19th. Visit www.sdcoe.net forward slash equity for more information. One of the things that I've come across, you know, in my research and just reading and educating myself about belonging, I read a book called Radical Care from Dr. McCutcheon. And one of the things that she talks about is this idea of limiting care, right? And I think you mentioned it a little bit. You, you talked about you you can't just pay attention to one. You got to pay attention to all. And so oftentimes when we think about belonging, we don't often associate it with the things that we teach and how we teach and what we do with students in classrooms and what we expect from students, that sends a message of, I believe in you. I, I know you can, you're capable, right? And I love you. And so what would you say are some of the things that you find in your research when you see the disconnect in leadership and sites where we pay attention to one, but not the other? Valentin, I think you're, you're touching on a really important construct, which is around the idea of social capital. Social capital represents the networks that we are able to be able to draw upon in order to be able to achieve our aspirations. And those that social capital includes not only friends and peers, but also leaders and so on. Social capital has been demonstrated to be a really important construct for students to be able to achieve at high levels. And social capital in schools include the network of relationships among students, the network of relationships between students and teachers, the network of relationships between teachers and families, which is sometimes overlooked. And all of these together can, with a strong web, really make sure that students are able to reach their aspirations. Here's the rub. The rub is that too often we leave social capital up to kids to be able to construct. Mm -hmm. In other words, we don't necessarily have systems in place 
to be able to create much in the way of social capital for more than a limited group of students. Those students tend to be the students who are in uh, formal leadership positions, uh, who have high academic grades and so on. We know what to do with those kids. Boy, we sure know how to build social networks, uh, social capital networks for them. But for the other kids, we leave them behind and we say, well, that's kind of the kid's responsibility to do. And I think that's where systems need to come into play. Thank you for that, because you you just sparked another idea in my head, Nancy, and that is this idea of uh, the cultural wealth model, right, that, that you, Dr. Yoso um, um, points out. And so when you, we talk about systems, you know, the reason why we develop the, the equity blueprint for action here for our county office to help our districts, you know, look at and think about the pervasive equity gaps that exist within certain students within our county. These uh, results are not new. They've been around for you know decades and so, and they haven't really shifted. And so we know that our African-American students, we know that our Latinx students, we know that our indigenous students continue to be some of the most marginalized students in our system, our educational system. So when I hear you talk about systems and schools and districts, I think about the lack of systems that support teacher practice in recognizing their own identities, recognizing their own biases, recognizing the mindsets that exist, right, that continue to perpetuate these outcomes. And so, you know, when I hear social capital, I also think about the different kinds of capital that Yoso points out, and that is familial capital, linguistic capital, aspirational capital, navigational capital, right, that resistant capital. And so using that asset-based approach of how are we leveraging the assets that our students bring into our classrooms? Because that shows them that we see them, that we know, understand them, and that we are able to then take out and uplift the, the beauty and the gifts that they bring, that genius they bring into our classrooms. You know, E.J. Styles, who is a gifted writer and also a high school English teacher, says exactly what it is that you offered, Valentine, and in a really concise kind of way that sticks with me. And what she says is half the curriculum walks in the classroom door every day, but nice. do we use it? Nice. Do we use it? And that familial capital, uh, I'll add one more kind of capital to that, decisional capital. We don't often equip students with the opportunity to make decisions that are consequential, that matter. I'll draw on different uh, body of research around belonging. Eric Carter is a researcher who uh, focuses on the lives of people with intellectual disabilities. So we're speaking kind of from a place that I come from uh, as well. And he talks about how important it is that we create systems of belonging for people such that they can reach their aspirations. And he actually talks about 11 constructs and I'll, I'll, I'll say them slowly so that we can get a hold of them. And then I'm, I want to dive in on a couple of those because I think they connect so beautifully, uh, Valentine, with what you offered. The first is that people need to feel welcomed into, in this case, the school environment. But welcoming is more, is not the same as being invited into the into the school. We're all getting ready for Halloween. We welcome the trick-or-treaters out onto the front porch, but how many of them do we actually invite into our home? That you need to be present 
You need to be in those spaces. And to me, that connects so well with the work that happens around bolstering attendance, uh, for example. You need to be there. The fourth one is that you must be known as well as accepted. That's the fifth one. Being known and being accepted mean that you understand the places that I come from. You understand the space that I occupy. You understand my linguistic gifts, my cultural gifts, my familial gifts. He also talks about that you need to be involved in that particular organization. Students having decisional capital for consequential decisions that happen in their school is really important. It's more than just figuring out what the theme is going to be for next year's prom, right? We need to make, we need to equip them with the ability to be able to make consequential decisions that we follow through with. They must be heard. They also must be supported They need the supports, and there are a variety of different kinds of supports that different students need, but they also need opportunities to be befriended. And here's what I mean by that. Befriended means, do we create opportunities in our classrooms and in our schools for students to become friends with one another? Mm. They must be needed. In other words, if I'm not here, then it makes a difference. There's a loss of that. And then finally, and Valentine, this was something that you said right at the beginning, they need to feel loved. All of those dimensions are what create a sense of belonging. Yes, 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 yes. Exclamation point. Thank you for those. And I know that you have done a lot of work with your team at Health Sciences Middle and High College to actualize this. Could you give us some examples on how you're actualizing that in your school? I'll give you two examples. And they draw on some of these elements or dimensions of belonging. We do two huddles a day. Familiar with the idea of a huddle, meeting out in the middle of the field, you know, and we have a quick conversation and then we go. Very similarly, we have these two huddles that happen every day. One happens at 835, which is just after school gets started. And it is a huddle that is dedicated to restorative practices. What are the hot button issues that are happening right now? And what is the responsibilities or the actions that different members of that team are going to take today? I should say this, our huddles are 10 minutes long and they are standing. Nobody gets to sit down, right? Because every meeting gets twice as long when you let people sit down. So we literally stand in the principal's office and there's a group of, and the membership varies from day to day, but they are people especially that are charged with student support, around student discipline, as well as teacher, a grade level rep that varies every day. And it's all about action. What are what are the parent meetings that are planned? Is there a home visit that's going on? Is there feedback from restorative meeting that happened the day before? The second huddle that we do is at 9.45 a.m. every day, and it's an attendance huddle. Now, the composition of the people that are in the attendance huddle 
is a little bit different, but it's run by the attendance clerk because guess what? At school, nobody knows more than the attendance clerk about why kids are coming or not coming, what's delaying them and so on. And it's the same focused attention. What are our actions? Who are our high flyers? What are some specific things that are going to happen today? And who's going to take responsibility for that? Having daily huddles has been a game changer for us in terms of being able to lead those two efforts around restorative practices and around attendance. Because every single day, there is a set of action items to be able to work on. That's amazing. Absolutely. Having the the opportunity to touch base every day, right? And getting a pulse on the families. The attendance clerk, I remember when I was on site, the attendance clerk knew the families, the attendance clerk lived in the, in the community, knew the families, knew some things that were going on, and it could help me make connections to what was going on perhaps behind the scenes. But in addition, they were able to connect me to a person who could tell me more, right? So I, I was able to make that home visit. I was able to have that conversation. I wanted to, to swing back to the idea about decisional capital mm. and how important that is. And I, I'm curious on how you're actualizing it or what your thoughts are on how that could be done at a site. So I'll give a high school example as, as one example. That's where it is that I am. So we had students who were concerned about some of the dress code items that we had in the handbook. And so the first aspect of that is they have to have a forum to be heard. How is it that students can bring forward concerns, problems that they have? In this particular case, it actually initially bubbled up in the English class, in the uh, ninth grade English classes. And the teacher kind of brought forward initially what those concerns were. We put together uh, groups of students to be able to have some focus, focus conversations with them, find out what their recommendations were. And what the result of that was, is that we went back into the handbook and there was language that we changed because students said, hey, this is a problem. And it was a problem that they were right about but that we had just not noticed it anymore because you look at the same handbook year after year after year and you don't even notice what's right in front of you. What's that old saying about the last thing that a fish notices is the water it swims in? Well, I think the last thing (laughs) that teachers and administrators notice is the handbook that they swim in. We needed students to be able to bring that to our attention. I think that that really speaks to this idea of the systems that you put in place, right? And so the practices that we put in place in our in our schools to be able to have ongoing opportunities for students to provide feedback. So, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about, and and thank you, um, Dave, for bringing us back to decision uh, uh, decisional capital, because one of the things that we see, especially with students who are marginalized in our system, are students that are being suspended and expelled. I can tell you, as a juvenile court school principal who took in a lot of our expulsions from our county, I interviewed every student that came through my doors. And I used, I used to ask them three questions. The first question I used to ask them was, you know, what is your experience with school? What is your experience with school? How do you see yourself as a, as a, as a learner, as a scholar? And then what are your goals? I asked three simple questions. Nine out of 10 times, 
kids shared with me that their experience in school was just atrocious. Nobody liked me. I didn't feel like every, I felt like everybody was out to get me. I never had a chance. And so it was this constant experience for these students that made me think about like, how am I leading my staff to do things differently? Mm-hmm. Right. How are we engaging student voice and helping inform our discipline policies? What kids are saying should matter and how we discipline our, our students, right? How are we involving them in the process? And so having these ongoing opportunities for, for students to provide feedback on our discipline policies, our, our, the practices that we use for you know, detention, assigning detention, you mentioned dress code, right? I mean, I can, I can go to schools and ask for their dress code and I can tell you who's coming to your office, right? Yeah. And, so, and so being very intentional with how we're engaging students in that, that decision-making of tell us how you're experiencing our system so that we can have some critical data we can use to then move forward as a, as a community that supports students. Too often we rely on, without intending to, with at least consciously, we rely as systems on using a lot of shame and humiliation of students in order to be able to control behavior. And I'm using control in a, a very pointed kind of way. How dare we, as a, uh, say to an eight-year-old, for example, if you don't stop doing that, I'm going to call your mother. Because as an eight-year-old, there's nothing worse than being shamed in front of your family. And yet that's the first thing. No, no, no. If there's a problem, we need to be able to solve what that problem is and resolve what that problem is right here, not by uh, instituting some shame and humiliation in order to be able to control your behavior. Bringing it back to LCAP and bringing it back to priorities five and six, when we think about the the type of data that LCAP is required to get high level percentages or numbers, um, and we, we see actions at, at that very high level, We've been talking a lot in the county about how to get down to that street level, right? Street data. Mm-hmm. And how mm-hmm. do we how do we talk to students, talk to parents, talk to teachers in the system to find out their experiences, right? That experiential data that's going to help inform the type of actions we're going to put into our LCAP, the type of data that we're going to collect. We're trying to move the needle from what is required in the LCAP to what we're hearing from our community and to think about equity challenges within our system. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious about and the type of work that you're doing and what advice would you give to LEAs, charter schools, teachers, parents in the field on, on this area of sense of belonging so that we can get that data, get that information to help us make decisions in our system. And I think one of the challenges with uh, with LCAP is that it can be incorrectly perceived as being something that is distant, that is far away from my practice, right? And so I'll use the old expression about think globally, but act locally. And what, uh, a piece of advice is for districts, for schools, charter schools, to be able to make that connection between here's the LCAP goal and here's how it is that we utilize it. I'm going to give you a really simple example. In a study of 10 middle schools, these schools were concerned about 
levels of engagement uh, among their students, especially um, their task engagement and so on. And so here's what they did. They implemented a greeting program at the classroom door. And so the teachers were trained in this intervention, which by the way, is a pretty simple intervention because what you do is first of all, you stand at your classroom door when it's time to teach classes, right? And as students come in, you say their name, you make eye contact with them, you give them a friendly facial expression and you say something encouraging to them, like, hey, I'm glad you're here or something like that. Here's what they found out. That simple intervention that teachers can do changed by 20 percentage points the level of engagement. They had some measures of engagement. It went up by 20 percentage points and the degree of problematic behaviors went down by 9% by that simple intervention to be able to do that. But there's a systems response that's in that simple intervention. And that is, we're all going to do this. We're all going to do this and we're going to commit to being able to do this. Making that bridge between here's the LCAP goal and then here's what it looks like on the daily in our classrooms, in our hallways, in our schools, that is a secret, I think, to moving toward those LCAP goals that we all put into place. Yes. And that, that also speaks to me about humanizing the data, right? When we look at mm-hmm. an LCAP, we see a number and a percentage, but we're not humanizing that. We're not making the connection to that as a student walking through my door, right? That's a very different conversation than the high school percentage rate, right? Or chronic absenteeism rate. That's a very different conversation. And that's how you actualize it. The uh, And, you know, I wonder, Deb, as you, uh, as you talk about that, you know, every year schools have to report their suspension and expulsion rates. And they're reported in quantitative ways, number of kids, what groups, um, genders, so on that they belong to. What if we started putting names on those? We didn't suspend nine kids. Here are the names of the nine kids we suspended. And it changes the conversation. It, As you said, it humanizes what that data are because there are names, there are faces, there are dreams, there are families that are behind every one of those data points. Yes, absolutely. Oh, you know, we we often, you know, when when we see these expulsion and, and suspension rates for schools and districts, you know, there are stories that go along with the data, right? And so one of the things that we often don't think about is, you know, the kind of trauma and and environments that many of our students are are coming from. And so if we are if our system is not being responsive to providing the kinds of, you know, mental health and and support systems in place that's going to help support them get through their day then the system's not really doing what it's supposed to be doing, right? Which is supporting students. And when we don't talk to kids and understand what those stories are about, you know, what they're going through and what's happening, um, it makes it really difficult for us to put the things in place that that are going to support those children, right? And I can tell you that I had students that we wouldn't see sometimes for maybe a week or two weeks, right? And when they would show up to school, it was like, hey, I'm really glad you're here, you know? And when students would tell us what was going on, you know, they hadn't eaten in three days. You know, they were sleeping under the bridge. They they didn't have a home to go to. They had been they had been kicked out two weeks ago and had been couch surfing with friends, right? But then we expect them to come to school 
and we expect them to do reading, you know, writing and arithmetic, right? That's the last thing on these kids' minds. And so how are we ensuring that we are paying attention, close attention to the kids that are at the margins of our system to understand their stories about what is really happening? And then how does the system then become responsive to not only provide support when that child is there in school, but also when they're not in school, yes. right? Our kids that are going hungry, right? What is, what is the meals that, that we are going to give them to take home on the weekend so that they can feed themselves and feed their families, brothers and sisters? Like there are things that we have to really uh, value in education that, that go beyond just the reading, writing, and arithmetic. And so um, building that culture, building the welcoming spaces, building the relationships, the meaningful relationships for kids to be able to talk to you about what's going on in their life is super important, right? And we know that if just if a kid has one adult on campus, one adult that they can connect with, that changes their life trajectory, right? And we we see it across the research. The research is there. And so how are we creating systems and, and opportunities for kids to make meaningful connections with adults on, on, in our schools? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and Valentin, what you're causing me to think is, and I'll draw on an older model, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of need, right? That we all uh, certainly learned lots about when we were in our um, teaching programs uh, as well. And Maslow's hierarchy of need talks about the fact that at the very base, you've got to take care of those physiological needs. Nothing else can happen if you're not meeting those physiological needs. But go up the pyramid just a bit. And what, what the, the hierarchy of needs noted is that you must feel a sense of belonging before you can achieve. Yes. And too often in schools, it's the reverse. Once you show me you can achieve, then you can belong. And we need to be able to disrupt what that looks like. And that means going all the way down to the bottom of that hierarchy of need. What are those foundational needs that are so important? And I worry in particular about secondary students who get very, very good at being able to hide what it is that they need because they've experienced a system that does not respond. And so they hide it. And knowing, having an adult that matters on your campus to that student can make a world of difference. Yes. And and we had a little conversation just a couple of days ago, um, Nancy, pertaining to measurement. And that's where, you know, there's the challenge, right? How do we measure a sense of belonging? How do we know we're making impact? I think that's the question that we struggle with in in terms of LCAP, in terms of equity work, what are some what's some research and your ideas on measuring impact when it comes to a sense of belonging? I'm I'm so excited about uh, this work because it isn't only measuring, but it's also a tool for monitoring, yes. and I think that's really important too. We, as you noted right at the beginning, if we're only taking that data collection once a year, then it's stale data. It's stale by the time we've gotten it, right? So um, uh, the Center for Whole Child Education is at Arizona State University. They, for 20 years, they were uh, Turnaround for Children. They are now, uh, they've renamed themselves. And they have all of these materials. And again, that's the Center for Whole Child Education. And it's at Arizona State University. I want to make sure to give them lots of credit for this. They have all of these materials, measurements, 
for measuring belonging. The one that I'm the most excited about is a simple questionnaire that classroom teachers can do weekly or twice a month or once a month to be able to check in on students' sense of belonging. There's a scale, it's called a student well-being scale. There's one for elementary, this is grades three through five. There's another, has a little bit higher readability level for students in grades six through 12. So I'll give you the six questions that are on the elementary check-in. I've been eating healthy foods. I've been active. I've been interested in my daily activities. I've been getting enough sleep. I've been in a good mood. I'm being field cared about by others. And the, the center also has these really easy ways of being able to collect the data through using Google Forms, being able to associate it with individual students so that you can kind of monitor how, how they're doing. We, you know, do you see the dip all of a sudden? You've got this kid that's been doing really well on all of this, and suddenly you see this dip. That gives you the idea, I need to check in with that kid. I need to be able to find out what's going on. These are simple tools to be able to use. Individual teachers can use them whole schools can use them. The student well-being index and just having kids answer these questions on a Google form, maybe toward the end of the week, you've got great monitoring data. What makes that so interesting to me is that that is different than how many days a student is at school. Yes. Yes. Right? That's a different conversation. <laughs> yes. And I'll, and I'll go back to, I'll go back to Eric Carter's dimensions of belonging. Being present is certainly one of the dimensions, but there are all these other dimensions too. Yes. Do I feel supported? Do I feel needed? Do I feel invited? Do I feel loved? All of those things contribute to a sense of belonging. Yes. What a great time with Nancy. Right. I'm telling you. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was a mic drop moment. That was like, boom. <laughs> It's been- I'm lots of fun. I really am. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> obviously. All right. So, so we get to see how fun you are, Nancy, because we got to do our, our, you know, our, our usual uh, quick fire uh, question and response with you. So this has nothing to do with what we were talking about today. This is just really about getting to know you as a person. And so let me know if you're ready for our quick fire. Uh, I'm ready. Questions. This is like the quiz at the end of the Vanity Fair magazine, right? Yes. Interview, right? This is like your version of Proust's interview. I'm ready. Yes. Yeah. Quick questions. I got five questions for you. The first question, something you love to do when you're not working. Ooh, I love to hang out with people that love me. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's a great answer. Your, your favorite movie. My favorite movie. And can it be this year's favorite movie? Sure. This my, year's favorite movie. My favorite movie this year. I got to go with Barbie. Oh, I gotta go with Barbie. Yes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's the movie of 2023. So, well, so love it. that's my favorite love movie. It. Love it. Are you are you more a uh, cats or dog person? I am a dog person who owns a cat. Or should I say, I live in the same house with a cat. <laughs> there you go. Um, because, does anybody really own a cat? I think that dogs have owners, cats have staff. Uh, so I am one of the members of the staff <laughs> for the cat. That awesome. So true. <laughs> coffee or tea? Oh, coffee all the way. Yes. 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 And then what is a fun fact about you? 
I have been on all seven continents. Amazing. I Amazing. love to travel. Amazing. So that's my brag. I've been on all seven continents. <laughs> love it. That is so wonderful. It's been just such a treat to talk with you. I just love it. I feel inspired, motivated, and ready to go do this work. Like I just want to pull up my sleeves and let's get into it. I just really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. It's just been a treat. Well, and I want to thank both of you for this as well. I love the work that you're doing, the power of being able to combine equity and LCAP is amazing. You know, there's so much work that's out there around a financial equity and how it is that we create structures in schools and in districts that speak to financial equity. What a powerhouse that you have really developed with this model. Congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. I want to hear